0: From News Talk 580-1059-KMJ, this is the Matty Report,
1: Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. My, how things have changed. According to the non-parson legislative Analyst office, California's fiscal outlook is now quote, remarkably good, unquote. But the rosy forecast comes with a warning. Things could change in a hurry. Our guest is the state's most respected authority on the state budget. Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst.
0: Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, Harvesting Health and Happiness Around the World. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome. So what is the current state of the state's finances? Remarkably good, according to our guest, Mac Taylor, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst and the recognized authority on the state budget. Um, you're smiling, that's a change from, from, from years ago, I know that. So let's talk about uh, uh, state finances. Let's talk first of all, first of all about the economic outlook. Uh, what forms the basis for the economic outlook? What are, what are you looking at?
2: Sure, we uh, rely on a uh, consensus national forecast of, of economists. Uh, and we use that for the national economy, then we build our own forecast for the California economy. And I think that, at least for the near term, out the next year or so, I, I think the consensus is that we will have continued growth, not maybe as robust as we've had, uh, some slowing in, in job growth, for example, but generally I think pretty positive over the near term.
1: Yeah, the the, the economic situation has been been doing pretty well. The recovery has been going on for it's a little long in the tooth.
2: It's a, it's a very long re- recovery historically. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean that it still can't proceed for for a while longer.
1: You know a lot of people probably are interested in, in what the specific outlook is for wages and salaries because it affects them on, on job growth. What, what are you seeing there?
2: Uh, wages and salaries is obviously a key component of, of income. That's what most of us have as, as you suggest. Suggested. Uh, and there, the outlook is very positive because unemployment is so low in the state. You obviously have employees in a good position to extract greater <laughs> wage increases in order to either attract new employees or to keep the ones that you have.
1: Right, right. Uh, it's very different when, when, when there is high unemployment. Obviously. Absolutely. So let's talk about uh, housing, which is another big part of uh, people's uh, income or what they what they own, their assets. Uh, California has been experiencing a housing crisis for some time what's the economic forecast for house housing prices or house prices in california
2: well as as you said obviously the uh, high house prices housing prices are a big concern in the state and any anytime that you can have moderation of that that's that's a good thing and i think uh the the main reason why we are forecasting a dampening of the growth in housing prices mm-hmm. is because of high interest rates that obviously makes it more difficult for people to to uh, drive up prices as they seek new homes. Uh, obviously, it makes it more difficult to get in homes. So it's always a sort of a balancing test. There.
1: What about the supply of houses? Is that going up? It's,
2: we're having some improvement in building more units than we have in recent years. It's still not high by historical standards, um, but it has gone up from where we were in the in the Great Recession, and that's obviously taking some pressure off prices too.
1: Yeah, they they and they need more houses for sure. I mean, we still need to build a lot more houses. Right, right. Still behind on that. So let's talk about the stock market. Now okay. that thing has been if if. if if you're invested, you're getting nervous, with up and down, and um, you to have a strong stomach. But um, the stock market's particularly important for California's fiscal situation. So let's talk about, first of all, what do you expect to see in the stock market? And then explain why it's so important for California's uh, fiscal situation.
2: Yeah, again, you know, we're sort of relying on that national consensus forecast that stock prices are not going to be doing much in the near future. Now, again, that's that maybe they won't be growing very much, but they still could be ping-ponging around. But we just think that given where uh, price-earning ratios are, uh, prospects for additional earnings, that that they're not likely to go up from where they have been, say, an average over the past year. Now, the reason why it's so important to the state is because we do rely on high-income earners, and in good times, um, returns on capital gains from these high-income people can make up a very sizable part of our personal income tax.
1: Well, how much... Can you give me, like, a number of how much this is, how reliant we are on these high-income earners?
2: The personal income tax is a key um, piece of our general fund uh, picture, and stock uh, capital gains can be as much as 15% of personal income tax revenues.
1: Wow, Um, that's quite a bit. Um, And the stock market's gone up, I mean, from 2014 to 17, There's been a nice run-up in the stock Absolutely,
2: absolutely. And then you also have to kind of figure out, well, when are they going to take their gains? Are they short-term, long-term gains? There's still lots of, you know, difficulty in forecasting those, but generally, obviously, when you've had this kind of rise, it's been very good for California revenues. Right,
1: right, yeah, doing very well. So, um, there's also this issue about trade. Um, President Trump has been talking about tariffs. Uh, What impacts does trade and tariffs have on uh, the economy generally and on the state finances in particular
2: yeah i mean i think there's general consensus that uh, any sort of trade wars trade restrictions is not good for the economy and you can think about it from the perspective of producers in california who will have limited sales because of tariffs other countries and then you can think about it in terms of consumers who will have to pay higher prices from goods that they might import from China or other other countries where we have these trade restrictions so it's not it's not a a good thing for the state budget either Um, I'm not it's not it's not a crucial aspect unless the the trade wars really got out of hand but it is a negative but
1: if it hits the stock market then it could have if a it affects impact.
2: the state, and then you can have that effect through the capital
1: gains. Okay. Up next, we're going to take a closer look at how much the state's revenues and expenses have been increasing. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking about the economic outlook and its implications for the state finances with Mac Taylor, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst. So let's talk about state revenues uh, first. Where does the state collect its money? What are the basic sources of, of the revenue? How much has it increased over the last you know, five years or so? And What's the outlook going forward?
2: Well, with regards to the state's main account, the general fund, we used to talk in terms of having the big three in taxes, personal income tax, corporate tax, and sales tax. Okay. We really now have the big one. Personal income taxes are about 70% of the general fund, and so what happens with them is sort of defines how you're doing, really. Uh, and fortunately, we've been doing very well. Over the last uh, five years, for example, all, all revenues have increased by about 41%. Which is obviously very good annual strong growth wage rate.
1: growth, strong stock market.
2: Exactly, yeah. okay. uh, and so we've been doing very well, and we are forecasting for California, at least in the next fiscal year, that we'll continue to do well. Not so much because of the stock market, but really because of what we just talked about: wage and salary growth. Okay. We expect it to be fairly strong.
1: Yeah, I think you said wage growth about four percent adjusted for inflation, uh, compared and according to your uh, report, two point six percent between nineteen ninety three and two thousand twelve. So. Uh, A little uh, faster wage growth than has been going on in the past. Let's turn to state expenses. Uh, K-12 is the biggest expense, uh, about 40% of the general fund. I think you said that if you add higher education in there, it's over 50%. It's
2: about half on education.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, So what are the projections for state spending on education?
2: Well, we tend to think in terms of the Prop 98 budget, which covers K-14, through including the community colleges. And that was the measure that passed that provides for this uh, minimum amount of money we have to spend each year on K through 14. Called the minimum guarantee. It's called the minimum guarantee. And it's, it, it reflects both general fund monies, the state general fund monies, and property taxes at the local level. Okay. That guarantee is projected to, we project, will grow by about 3%, not only in the coming fiscal year, but really over our entire fiscal outlook period. Now, that may not seem like a lot for schools thinking 3% a year. Except there's no growth in attendance. There's not an increase in students. In fact, it's been declining slightly. And so at least that means that the money that they do have can be spent on whatever salaries, more teachers, whatever.
1: Yeah, I think you said in your report that you have $480 million over and above that 3.1% statutory COLA increase. There's $480 million basically to play with. Um, for decisions for the legislature. i play with is probably the wrong term. But... Um, they can use it however whatever,
2: for whatever purpose that they right. want.
1: And you could, I mean, I'm speculating here, but maybe pre-K is a possibility.
2: It could go to that. It could go to reducing class sizes for whatever right. that There's the legislature determines. Sources.
1: Another big, another big uh, expenditure for the state or health and human services, and I think your office, your office estimates that the cost will increase $1.6 billion, about four percent. And those increases are driven by three programs. What are the three programs that are driving this?
2: The biggest program by far in Health and Human Services is Medi-Cal, which provides health services to low-income people. And it's projected to grow just over 6% in 1920. That's in part because of a one-time factor of of losing a revenue source that's going to be going away. Um, but it's also just this program has typically grown fairly rapidly in recent years. And, and the
1: population is also aging. Um, maybe that has some impact. That has some,
2: some impact to do with it uh, too. So that is the biggest program you look at in Health okay. and Human Services. Okay. There are two other programs. Uh, developmental Services, particularly driven by increases in autism cases. Okay and uh, IHSS, In-Home Supportive Services, which helps keep seniors and, and, and disabled people in, in their homes. Right.
1: And so they've got a growing caseload, they've got a growing cost. And minimum wage, exactly. and so all this adds up. Um, okay, so another thing you note in your forecast, um, your estimates on uh, HHS spending are less than half the administrations. So why, why the discrepancy?
2: Well, in some ways we don't know. Uh, well, okay. that's, well, that's one of the points that we're trying to raise, is that the administration typically has only forecast Health and Human Services as total without the program detail. Mm-hmm. And so we'd not, we're not exactly sure where our forecast for out-year spending differs by program, so it makes us hard to assess whether we think they may, are making a better case for, with their expenditure numbers or that our numbers are better. So we'd love to see a little more detail from the administration so we can make those assessments.
1: Okay. Well, uh, another area of spending is, of course, employee compensation, including retirement payments. Um, how much do you project that they're going to increase?
2: Uh, we have them, obviously, going up. Uh, with PRRS rates have been s- still increasing right. as they've made adjustments in what their earnings assumptions are. And so we do have those increasing in a, in a program that we've been looking at for several years uh, because of the higher cost in those, in those areas.
1: And the correctional officers, too, are getting a 5% pay increase, and that's a big hit on the general fund.
2: Absolutely. That's a, a big piece of state employee salaries and benefits is uh, corrections.
1: Now, the other thing you said in your report, that you indicated that there are some other major spending increases that were offset by significant one-time spending. Can you explain that?
2: Sure. We've been talking about all these increases for 1920, the coming fiscal year. 1920. Okay.
1: 2019
2: 20, 20 is the oh, fiscal year. Oh, I'm year. sorry. That's that one. will start next July 1. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: 1920 is 100 years ago. No. I'm sorry. That was 2019 the, exactly. 2020. I apologize. I used
2: the abbreviated. Um, and so you think, well, all these increases, Medi 6%, uh, schools, 3%, mm-hmm. you'd think spending would be growing a lot. However, we had a lot of one time spending in, in 2018 19, the current fiscal right. year. Once you drop out the one-time spending, the year-to-year increase isn't as much. We're yeah. only forecasting that it's going to be one and a half percent. So that's kind of underestimating what's really going on in a lot of programs, but that is the year-to-year increase that we're forecasting.
1: Okay. Well, up next, a little bit more about state finances. Uh, how are we doing? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kuppel with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with California's nonpartisan legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, about the fiscal outlook for the state of California in the year ahead. Uh, let's talk about the condition of the general fund. Um, your estimate is that the state will end the fiscal year with $9.1 billion in discretionary reserves. That's an increase of $7.2 billion over the amount that was assumed back when the budget was passed in June. First of all, can you describe what you mean by discretionary uh, reserves? And second, why are the discretionary reserves, uh, why do they end up being so much more than expected? Sure. Well, the state has what's, what we call uh,
2: uh, the rainy day fund. That's constitutionally sort of provided for and protected. Its Monies go in sort of automatically, they can come out only in their limited situations. The discretionary reserves that you're talking about are really just sort of what's left over in your bank account at the end of the year. You spent less than you had. And those reserves are another form that you can use for a rainy day or you can use them for different purposes and that's why the term discretionary, the legislature and governor, can determine what they want to do with them. The reason why they increased so much from what we had planned was mainly revenues went up, or they went up from what had been estimated by the administration. We had always thought there was a lot more upside to the revenues, and I think you're going to find in January, well, we'll see where the the administration is.
1: Which is, by the way, one of the strategies sometimes that the governor uses is to kind of come in a little low on the revenue so they can say, listen, don't spend all the money, we don't know we're going to have it. It can
2: be. It certainly can be, and it has been in some cases. Uh, now, and so the reason it went up is, well, revenues are, we think, are going to be a lot higher than what had been assumed in the budget. And also, school spending, we talked about Proposition 98 spending, mm-hmm. is down by over a billion, and that's for two factors. Property taxes are higher than we thought, and when, so when that increases, more- the general fund part of the whole overall guarantee goes down. So that improves the, the bottom right. line for the um, the general fund, plus attendance was even lower than right. what we'd expect.
1: Yeah, the contents is going down. So um, next fiscal year, the discretionary uh, reserve is going to grow by, you're saying five, you're projecting $5.7 billion for a total of almost $15 billion, $14.8 billion in available discretionary uh, reserves. Uh, how did you arrive at those figures?
2: Again, it was really taking what we've already talked about, the spending increases that we think will happen. And remember, because of the one-time spending in the current year, leaving you with a very small in year-to-year increase, mm-hmm. We basically just had much greater revenue growth than that spending. That money all goes to the bottom line of your discretionary reserves. Now, we know that the legislature and the governor may want to spend some of those monies. So when we say this is what you would have, it's assuming that no additional programs are funded. It's not that we're projecting that. It's just giving you a baseline from which to start. But that's a big caveat. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and that's the decisions that the legislature and the governor will right. make. You, do you increase spending? Do you reduce taxes? Uh, do you increase reserves? Exactly. What do you do with this money? Um so what do you project regarding constitutionally required reserves infrastructure spending and debt payments
2: Right well under proposition 2 which the voters approved a few years ago uh we have to put some of the the increase in monies into our our rainy day reserve we're going to sort of top that off at the it's, 10% there's a max
1: like
2: 10% 10% of general fund revenues we'll top that off Which
1: by the way that that seems to be we talked to businesses having a 10% reserve is is it's pretty prudent. It seems reasonable.
2: Right, although you think about it, it depends on what type of business you're in. It's true. If it's volatile. If it's a volatile business like real estate, you probably want to have more. No, that's true. If it's a business that's pretty stable, maybe it's uh, providing a certain type of good that people need almost mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, you wouldn't have to have as big a reserve. It's nice to have one. It's it nice is to. nice to have one, though. And then so the amount of money over the 10% reserve is is going to be spent on infrastructure. We think that's going to be uh, about $900 million. And again, the legislature and the governor will determine how what projects to spend okay. on. Uh, and then we pay off debts under Prop 2. We have about 1.7 billion dollars that we're going to pay off past debts, such things as loans that we had made, and we're just going to pay them off.
1: Yeah, it's always a good idea to get those things off. One thing I did notice, in your point, I thought this was really interesting, was this 268 million dollars to use to prefund uh, retiree health benefits. It's interesting. It sounds like a lot of money, but that problem is pretty large. The outstanding liability there. And the difference between uh, your retiree health and pensions is, with, with public employed pensions, we put money aside and then the interest on that money we use to kind of pay for the, for the cost. We don't do that with retiree health. Retiree health is we pay every year. Is this a way to kind of get at that problem?
2: Absolutely. We're shifting from pay-as-you-go, as they refer to it, where you just wait until the people retire and pay for their health care costs. Mm-hmm to prefunding it when those, in effect, those future benefits are being earned. And so we have tens of billions of dollars in liabilities, right. but we're now starting to pay for them and hopefully over a 25, 30 year period, we'll get to the point where we've paid off the liabilities and we're putting in the amount of money we need to each year that can earn money, as you Why said, not? To pay for those future minutes, It's
1: basically letting the money work for you, right? Absolutely. You know, and that's going to reduce the cost uh, to the general fund. Let, let me ask you this. Um, your conclusion on the state budget is that, I, I'm really struck by this, I got to tell you, Mac, because in the, in the years we've been on talking about the budget, I was shocked to see you're not a person prone to these kinds of words. Remarkably good shape. Um, that's a big change from when Jerry Brown took office back in 2010. How does it compare historically?
2: Well, or even when I, when I started as the legislative analyst in 2008, when we were just sort of tanking as a state, right. the economy and the nation. I remember the you the saying nation. 20
1: billion. D- d- oh, 40 d-
2: billion, I mean, you know, the, as, yeah, could there, see. they were unimaginable deficits yeah. when, when back then, uh, even a decade ago. And if you had told me we'd get to the point where we had, we're projecting total reserves, uh, you know, of, of you know, 20 billion or in, in excess of 20 billion, uh, I would have thought you were crazy. And so we've made remarkable good progress, and right now, at least, we're in very good sh-
1: shape. Yeah, that, that's yeah, and that's the caveat. So the picture is very rosy right now, but things can change quickly. Uh, so some possible uh, different scenarios that could change things. That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with a person universally recognized as the expert on the state budget, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, about the state's current fiscal outlook. Um, you said that, quote, The state budget is in remarkably good shape, unquote. Um, But you've added a word of caution that things could change quickly, and you specifically refer to what happened during the dot com bust of 2001. What happened there?
2: In November of 2000, when we put out our outlook report, we talked in terms of a possible $10 billion surplus at the end of the following year. Mm -hmm. Things were booming, the markets were. The next November, when we did our outlook, we were talking in terms of a twelve and a half billion dollar deficit at the end of the next year. That's how fast... Twenty-two
1: billion dollar swing. ...turnaround
2: just because of our reliance on high-income
1: taxpayers and capital gains. Capital gains, right, right. So in light of those uncertainties, you've kind of come up with different scenarios. You have a growth scenario and a recession scenario. So let's talk about the growth scenario first. How do you define that?
2: Well, you just have to sort of posit a couple of different things, the way things could go. Okay. We don't have sign of probabilities to them. We can't forecast what's gonna happen two, three years ahead of time. So we say under, under a growth scenario, we just assume sort of continued moderate growth. Not real high levels. We realize we're at the end of a, a long recovery, slowing job growth, you know, dampen okay. down things, but continued growth over the next three years.
1: Okay, and so in that situation, in a growth scenario, how does the state end up f- faring?
2: The state does very well. We do very Continues well. Continues to do well. We continue to do well. We have operating surpluses. That is, just in any one year, your revenues are greater than your expenses. So so basically, you can even build up reserves or you can spend more money.
1: The question is if it keeps going, though, because the reality is this, this um, recovery has been going on for quite a long time. So let's turn our attention to the recession scenario. Um, not predicting it. That's right. If it happens, um, first of all, how do you define a recession. Scenario. You know, we
2: just, again, we picked a scenario of a f- relatively quick recession, but where you have a fairly uh, dro- a steep drop in the, in the stock market. It loses about a third of its value. Mm-hmm. So just to try to mimic what might, might happen. And, and in that case, your reserves that you've built up buy you a lot of time. They don't quite get you through. Uh, it, it can almost allow you to get through the recession without making any sort of cuts. Now the problem is, If you then think about making additional commitments in this coming fiscal year, and we did a scenario of what if you add $3 billion in ongoing spending and $2 billion in in one-time spending, now your situation is much worse than trying to deal with a recession scenario.
1: I mean, I would assume you would like to see either putting that money more in reserves or one-time spending. What you don't really want is to add new programs that is going to be ongoing spending that's really gonna take a hit.
2: I think in a nutshell, that's it. That you can have some ongoing spending. I mean, that's what the legislature and the governor have to talk over. Right. But at least focus, build up your reserves, continue to build up your reserves, and do focus on one-time spending because then the next year that goes away. It makes your situation, your ability to adapt to a, a negative economic and revenue situation much easier.
1: Yeah, and one thing I also noticed in your report, you are talking about demographic trends. And specifically, you are talking about California's aging population. What is the impact on the state's fiscal outlook going forward with an aging population?
2: Obviously, the growth in people 65 and over is very, very Mm -hmm. significant. And
1: that does have some effects on the state budget. By the way, I want to say 65 young, um, this young group.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Uh, It has some effects on the state budget through our Medi-Cal program. We find nursing homes, uh, our IHSS program we talked about that provides seniors. But surprisingly enough, demographically, they're working for the state budget. Because much of what we spend on, we talked about education, is driven by the 5 through 24-year-old groups. Those are projected to actually decrease over the coming years.
1: So then the general fund spending is going to be lower?
2: Well, lower than it would it otherwise have been. been. And in other words, there's not the same pressures if you had significant growth, say in your 5 to 18 population. Because the education budget is such a large part, if it's growing faster than overall population, mm-hmm. it could eat up big chunks of your budget and put pressure on the rest and of it. And what about the fact that, you know, you're losing these people from
1: the, from the workforce? They're not That's working.
2: another thing. You look at that sort of uh, prime uh, wage earning group, right. group, which is maybe 40 through 60, mm-hmm. where people are, are earning at Or 65. Credits, or even <laughs> 65. Uh, and that group is not growing very rapidly. Okay. So you do have to look at all of those age groups and sort of think, well, what's the, what's the total effect on the state budget?
1: Okay, so we're going to end up here. We've only got about uh, 20 seconds left, but what is... According to the fiscal outlook, what, is, what are you recommending? You know, Bottom I think it,
2: it goes back to what we were just talking about. Be careful about making additional commitments. Mm-hmm. Build up those reserves. They're really important. And focus on
1: one-time spend. Well, I want to thank our guest, Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, for joining us. If you want to stay current in state and local politics, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can log on to our website at mattyandsuit.org.
0: You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, on KMJ.
1: Governor Newsom's proposed budget will set the stage for the annual budget negotiations that will continue into June. How will the process play out? A primer on the state budget process,
0: next. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report. With Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: When it comes to politics, there's a helpful saying, ignore the words, follow the money. Like other states, every year the California governor and legislature negotiate a new budget. The end result reflects their true values and priorities. For Californians who pay taxes, however, the state budget process is a mystery. Our guest, Scott Graves from the California Budget and Policy Center, will tell you how the state budget is put together and how your tax dollars are spent. Following the money, a primer on the California budget process.
0: Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, Harvesting Health and Happiness Around the World. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome. We've all heard the saying that actions are more important than words. That's particularly true in government. If you really want to know a politician's real priorities, you need to look no farther than the budget they're proposing. But budgets can be difficult for the average voter to understand. We're fortunate to have an expert, Scott Graves, who's the director of research for the California Budget and Policy Center, here to help explain the California budget process. Welcome to the Matter Report.
3: Thank you. I will do my best.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, first, can you explain where the money comes from to pay for the California state budget?
3: Well, ultimately, the money comes from California's taxpayers, either through the state personal income tax, state sales taxes, when we all go to the store and buy something that's taxed, We're contributing to the state budget and also those of us who are paying federal taxes a lot of that money is coming back to California so that money all flows back into the state budget and is accounted for in a couple ways we have federal funds in our state budget that makes up about one-third of the budget Mm -hmm. that's just over one hundred billion dollars in the coming year and then state funds make up about two-thirds of the state budget. That's around $180 billion. The largest state fund is called our general fund, not a very exciting name for a fund, um, but it's that's sort of the fund out of which our legislators and governor um, can apportion dollars for any purpose allowed by law. There are no strings attached to those general fund dollars, and that's the biggest portion of state spending. It's interesting,
1: you know, you're saying about $300 billion total-ish, um, 287. I uh, think people throw around
3: million dollars like it's budget dust in Sacramento. Yeah. It's not that big a deal, right? Yeah. When Until you look you, at the, a yeah. billion dollar budget, it isn't that big a deal. Right. Until you get up to a billion or more, that that's when you're talking real money. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's always an interesting concept. So you stated that the state budget is a
1: local budget. How
3: so? I think a lot of people think that because the budget is crafted in Sacramento, that all of the dollars remain in Sacramento, but the reality is the state budget uh, sends money out across California every year, and very few of those dollars actually remain in Sacramento. So that's why when we're talking about the state budget, it's important to think of it as not being just some state-level thing, but it's actually um, providing a lot of services that are flowing out at the local level. Yeah,
1: but sometimes you think when you think about that, it's kind of
3: pass-through that the state really has with the budget. And with revenue,
1: it's it's almost like he who has the gold makes the rules. So sometimes the state can put strings attached to the local governments. Uh,
3: I suppose, you know, there's a lot of public services supported by the state. Um, state budget. Can you talk about a few of those? Yeah, I mean the biggest one that a lot of people are surprised by is K twelve public education. I think a lot of Californians think that most money for their public schools comes from their local property taxes, and property taxes do play a big role in public education but most of the money that public schools are spending every year is coming from our state budget so that's one big piece of it Um, higher education also gets a lot of money from the state budget the community colleges the California State University there are 23 campuses around the state the 10 University of California campuses we have a medical health coverage program that's very very big that's a hundred billion dollar program in California federal and state money we've got a lot of services that help families in need including um, at-risk children through the foster care and child welfare services programs and of course we have a lot of public safety expenditures at the state level we have thirty-four state prisons scattered around california we spend more than ten billion general fund dollars per year on our correction system so that's another big uh, piece yeah, of spending. It's interesting you say corrections. A lot of people assume, if you ask them, you know, what does the state spend the money on? A lot of people I think will say corrections and crime, but that's actually, it's big, but it's, it's kind of the, it's not one of the biggest expenditures. Right. The biggest expenditure in the state budget, just speaking about the general fund, is K-12 education. If you look at uh, corrections spending at the state level, um, it's been dropping in recent years because of the state's efforts to reduce incarceration. Still around eight to nine percent of our general fund budget is going into our prison and parole system hmm. but that's still that's smaller than what we spend on higher education as a share of the budget and much smaller than what we spend on K-12. Yeah, I think the
1: number that's on K-12 is about forty percent on K-12 in community college and then another ten percent or so for higher education so if you just compare prisons you know incarceration about eight or nine percent compared to the say K-12 Which is like forty percent, and we're talking you know five times as much for education. I think people will be surprised by that. Right, Um, you know it's interesting. The state budget is actually a bill. Um, You described it though
3: as quote a bill of a different kind. What did you mean by that? So a lot of people are familiar with the policy process in the legislature, where you have a bill and it gets introduced in one house and it moves through various committees goes to the floor, then it goes to the next house. Uh, the budget bill is not like that. It is a bill, and here's an example of a recent budget bill. It's Light over, reading. It's over 700 pages long with thousands and thousands of numbers in it, um, but it's, it's different from uh, your standard bill for, you know, a couple of reasons. One is that um, it is moving through budget committees in the legislature, not through policy committees. Okay. Um, it's generally moving with other bills as part of a package. It's never alone. It's never flying solo. It's always got 20, 30, or 40 bills attached to it that help to a implement- on a ship. Yeah, right. There they are. You can't, you can't have a budget bill without the, 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 what are called trailer bills or okay. budget-related bills. Um, And also the bill is different, not only because it's so long, but because it covers everything that state government does. It funds an array of programs and services uh, for a single fiscal year. Wow. So thanks for that overview of the state budget. Up next, we're going to talk about the what,
1: who, and when of the state budget. That conversation in a moment. This is the MADI-Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the MADI-Institute, and I'm talking with Scott Graves, the Director of Research for the Nonpartisan California Budget and Policy Center. So the California budget seems to have a language all its own. It's like a foreign language. Um, And there are
3: some key terms, though, that most people should know. So let's go through a few key terms. Sure. One is the governor's proposed budget. What's that? So the proposed budget is the spending plan that the governor unveils or releases every January after a several months long process within his administration to figure out what he wants his budget to look like. So these are very big documents. This is not for the faint of heart. Here's an older version from the Gray Davis administration. It's as big as a big city telephone book, uh, hundreds of pages long with a lot of uh, very almost unintelligible jargon in many places and filled with numbers. So this is where you go if you want to know you're interested in a particular department or agency spending, you want to know how much they spent last year, how much they're estimated to spend in the current year, and how much the governor is proposing to spend in the next fiscal year. Put the green eye shades on. Uh, yes. Okay, so then we've got the governor's uh, budget summary. What's that? Okay, here's another somewhat older version of that. Um, the summary... Seems a little smaller. It's smaller. This is the narrative that accompanies the big budget. So this is more text and fewer numbers. This is where you go if you want to have a better understanding of the governor's revenue outlook. Does he think revenues are going to be up or down for the next fiscal Explains year? Explains the numbers. Right. His economic outlook. Does he have any major policy initiatives that he wants the legislature to pass? So that's where you would go to find all of those things, plus the governor's rationale for his budget. This is the governor's view of the world.
1: Okay. Uh, then we've
3: got the May revise or okay. the May revision. A right. revise is probably not grammatically correct, right. uh, but that's what people call it. What is that? So the May revision is the governor's second bite at the apple. Essentially he unveils his budget proposal in january a few months go by legislators look at it and then after we know what personal income taxes look like in california in april the governor then release tax day we all pay our taxes in right. april um, or, you know, I hope we do. Um, then you, the governor takes a look at that and says, okay, revenues are better than I thought they'd be. Revenues are worse than I thought they'd be. A lot of things have changed in the last few months. He revises his budget proposal and releases it by May 14th, and then legislators take a look at that. Okay, then you've got budget bills and you've got trailer bills. Can you talk about those for a second? So the budget bill, um, this is the several hundred uh, pages long document that gets introduced every year, and there can be more than one budget bill. A lot of people think there's only one budget bill, often there's more than one because they make changes to it throughout the year, but the budget bill essentially contains thousands of appropriations that tell agencies, boards, commissions, universities that they can spend a certain amount of money from a certain fund. Um, For a certain amount of time for a specific purpose. And I'm guessing, like (laughs) if
1: you're in the UC, you're going to be focusing specifically on the section
3: on University of California. You want to be able to. Not going to read the whole thing, right? What the governor is proposing in your area exactly. So the trailer bills. These are the bills that accompany the budget bill because the budget bill doesn't tell you much beyond the numbers. How much can be spent. The trailer bills or budget-related bills, such as this one, for example, they can be bigger or smaller Mm -hmm. than this. Um, They sort of explain how state law is going to have to change in order to implement the policies and spending assumed in the budget bill. Are those the
1: barnacles on the ship we were talking about? Barnacles
3: on the ship. You might have, in years past, maybe 20 years ago, there would have been 10 of these accompanying the budget bill. Um, During the Great Recession, when we had the big... Um, deficits in California a few years ago there were 40 or 50 of these trailer bills in recent years it's been more in the range of maybe 25 or 30 so there's a lot there are a lot of bills that move along with the budget bill through the process then we've got some key players in the process so quickly you know Department of Finance Department of Finance uh, is the governor's chief fiscal policy advisor they prepare all of the governor's budget related documents Um, this is going on in any given year from July through June basically oh. the whole year okay, they're you, always at
1: work then you got the assembly committees and the senate committees
3: yes So the budget committees in the legislature review the governor's proposals and they craft their own version of the budget before they go into final negotiations with the governor. Okay, and then we have the Legislative Analyst's Office. The LAO, um, they are the advisors to the legislature. They essentially work for state lawmakers and not for the governor. Um, They look at the governor's budget, they advise the legislature on it, and they um, put out publications. Let's talk about the timeline for the state budget. Uh, It's it's ongoing. This thing is, you know. 12 months a year, but let's start at January. Um, Kind of walk us through the the timeline for the state budget from January. Okay, you made a key point there. Before before you get to January, there's a lot that goes on. So it's really important for Californians to understand that it is a cyclical process. There's always someone in Sacramento thinking about the state budget. If it were a sport, there would be no off-season. So there's always uh, some aspect of the budget process going on. January, the big event is the governor releases his proposed budget for the upcoming fiscal year, that must be a balanced budget, meaning he has to show that revenues equal or exceed the spending that he is proposing. That has to be done by January 10th.
1: Okay, so he's projecting that, and then it goes
3: to the Legislative Committee hearings uh, sometime in the spring. Right, March, April, early May, the legislature, uh, both the Assembly and the Senate, will hold dozens of hearings digging into the details of the governor's proposals. Okay, and
1: then we've got May 14th is the governors may revise.
3: Right, May 14th, uh, that's the date when the governor puts out his updated budget proposal, taking into account how the world has changed in the previous four months.
1: And then there's legislative committees, you know, working in the Senate and the Assembly and during June. Then we
3: got June 15th is the next big deadline. June 15th—that's another constitutional deadline. The legislature is required to pass the budget bill, no other bills, just the budget bill, by midnight on June 15th. If they miss that deadline, they lose their pay and their reimbursement for travel and living expenses oh, that, for every day they're late. That'll get their it, attention. It's an incentive, and they have since that rule went into effect uh, seven years ago. They've never missed. The deadline. Yeah, not too many. I'm guessing yeah. not too many late yeah.
1: budgets. And then we got
3: July 1 start of the fiscal year. So we have a 12-month fiscal year. It runs July 1st through June 30th.
1: Okay, well thank you very much for talking about sure. the who, what, when, where, and why about the state budget process. Up next we're going to talk about the state constitution and how it sets some kind of key rules of the road when it comes to the California state budget process. What are they? That conversation in a moment. This is the Matty Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Um, we're talking with Scott Graves, the Director of Research for the Nonpartisan California Budget and Policy Center. The California Constitution sets some important rules regarding the budget process. What are they? So uh, one thing the California Constitution does is it talks about tax increases, and it requires a supermajority or a two-thirds vote. What are some of the taxes that that require this two-thirds vote? What are we talking about?
3: Yes. um, Back in 2010, the voters passed an initiative that requires that any tax, that any taxpayer who will be asked to pay a higher tax, that requires a two-thirds vote of the legislature. And he's a loaded term,
0: that's a, yeah. yeah.
3: So, I mean, you could could imagine a situation where uh, legislators want to cut taxes for 35 million people and raise taxes on five people, that bill would require a two-thirds vote because five people would be paying a higher tax. Wow. Really, so they really tightened up the rules um, through Proposition 26 back in 2010. Now you're hearing that a lot now with cap-and-trade. I mean, cap-and-trade, when they first proposed it, they said, oh this
1: isn't a tax, this is to deal with greenhouse gas emissions, but there's, a, there's currently a litigation to asking whether or not the cap-and-trade charge is a tax, and if it does, it needs a two-thirds uh, support of the legislature, so the governor now is working on that to try to get the legislature to, to reauthorize that. Right. Um, so that
3: goes to the question of what is a tax and what is a fee. Right. The other thing that Prop 26 did is it expanded the definition of a tax. So many um, increases that used to be considered fees and the legislature could pass by a majority vote, they now require a two-thirds supermajority vote. So yeah. that's so kind raising of, it, that issue. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a tax. Just because you call it a fee. It's well, they've got very clearly
1: defined rules now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, in the past, the, the budget bill uh, needed a two-thirds majority to pass. In 2010, you talked about this Prop 25, which allowed budget bills and trailer bills to pass on a simple majority vote. Um, but what if you got tax, a tax
3: uh, package, a, a bill, a trailer bill or something that's part of the budget package? Does that need a two-thirds vote? Yes, so any bill that's included in the budget package that otherwise requires a two-thirds vote still needs a two-thirds vote. So you can't get around it? No. So if you want to raise taxes you need a two-thirds vote even if you're doing it to balance um, the budget. Um, If you want to put a constitutional amendment before the voters you still need a two-thirds vote because the Constitution says so. You can't say well it's part of the budget so it should pass by majority vote. No, you need the supermajority.
1: Thanks for that clarification. Okay, so in 2016 Uh, The voters approved Prop 54, Um, and that that said that bills have to be published at least 72 hours before the legislature takes any action. Mm -hmm. So since the state budget is a bill, how does the 72-hour rule impact the budget process?
3: That 72-hour rule uh, applies to every bill, including the budget bill and budget-related bills known as trailer bills. So what this essentially means is um, the deadline for the legislature to pass the budget bill without being penalized is June 15th, midnight. That means if they have have to have the budget bill in print for three days or 72 hours, they really have to have the budget done by June 12th so one thing that has happened is there's already a compressed timeline between when the governor releases his May revision in mid-May and when they have to get the budget done now uh, Prop 54 has made that timeline a little bit shorter by backing up the date by which the legislature has to have a bill. So it's
1: really compressed time I mean I, I assume the legislature then is working some long hours
3: Yeah, it's all, there's a lot of negotiations that go on between mid-May and early June. Um, That's when the rubber really hits the road, and it's also when the process moves very quickly, and it gets harder for the public Um, you know, Joe Q. public to um, see the process, what's going on, and to influence the process.
1: So we've got a lot of legislatures and probably news reporters are putting in some pretty long nights during that compressed period between the May revise and when the budget has to
3: be done. That's right. And now the real deadline is going to be June 12th, not June 15th.
1: No wonder I can't get anybody on the phone during that time. (laughs) I think you just gave me the answer. I just want to go over one last thing because we
3: talked about it earlier and that was the penalties if a budget is late uh, under uh, Prop 25. What were the penalties again? So if the legislature has not passed and said to the governor the budget bill just sent to the governor he can veto it he can do anything he wants with it if they miss the June 15th deadline every day that they're late they forfeit their pay and the additional uh, money that they get to pay for travel per diem diem, the travel and living expenses so they would forfeit that money Um, since that rule went into effect in 2010 um... they have never missed the deadline so there have been various reasons why we've had on-time budgets since governor brown came back into the governor's office but you know probably a small role is played by the fact that um, if the legislature actually misses its deadline they'll have to pay a financial penalty.
1: Yeah, And and it gets their attention for sure. Well, thank you for providing that overview Mm -hmm. of some of the important rules of the budget process. Up next, you know, the people of California do have a direct say in the state budget process through the initiative and proposition process. It's called ballot box budgeting. What impact does it have on the state budget? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Scott Graves, the director of research for the nonpartisan California Budget and Policy Center. As we've discussed, the governor and the legislature craft the state's annual spending plan according to rules outlined by the state constitution. California voters, however, have periodically reviewed and revised the state constitution and that, that's had a profound effect on how the state budget process occurs. A great example of that is Prop 98, which was passed in 1998 and sets a, a guaranteed level of funding for K-12 schools and community colleges. So. I'm guessing, it's. I know it's pretty complicated from what I've read, but what is that, how is the minimum guarantee for education calculated
3: and can it be changed or modified? So it is a a very complicated formula that is used every year to figure out um, how much of the general fund will go toward K-12 schools and community colleges, which are also in the formula. There are three tests that apply under different economic and fiscal circumstances. So, you know, we're not going to get, it's really complicated. The number of people who actually understand it could fit around this table right now. (laughs) I think one Um, of the people who designed it actually said he sent his kids to Stanford based on his knowledge and what he was able to, you know, Sell that for basically to other people right. um, because it's just so complicated. It is complicated, but um, it is a key piece of the budget process every year because until legislators and the governor have a a good handle on how much the state is going to owe for Prop 98 to K-14 education, they don't really have a sense of how much of uh, the state budget is left for other programs and services. There's
1: another one, Prop 2, the Rennie Day Fund was approved by voters in 2014. What impact on the state budget does that have?
3: So that has uh, put in um, a fairly rigid formula that does require the state to set aside um, what amounts to billions of dollars every year into a rainy day fund uh, to save for the next recession mm-hmm. when things start to go downhill again right. um, and also to pay off some of our budgetary debt which includes unfunded pension liabilities right. so uh, that that is a new thing that the voters put in effect a new priority that they wanted to yeah, see Yeah,
1: it's interesting and they're talking about you know about ten billion dollars in, in all the reserves to state government but when you look back at the recession the Great Recession the, the state was running twenty billion dollar deficit so ten billion sounds like a lot as a reserve but you know, based on recent history, maybe not enough. Um, okay, so 2016, Prop 55 uh, was passed. It's kind of a continuation of a tax on wealthy Californians. What impact on the budget process?
3: So that will leave in place for another 12 years through 2030 uh, the personal income tax rate increases on the highest income Californians. It does allow uh, the sales tax rate increase that was part of The original initiative that put these uh, tax increases in place back in 2012, that sales tax increase has expired. Um, What Prop 55 does that's different though is that it requires uh, during certain years and under certain circumstances, some general fund dollars to go automatically to the Medi-Cal program which provides health care to low and moderate income Californians. So it puts a new rule in there. I wanna ask you quickly about this thing called a state mandate. Uh, What are they and how do they impact the state budget process? So state mandates are essentially requirements from the state that local governments perform certain activities. Um, Decades ago, and and maybe not so long ago, the state would tell locals that it needed to do certain things and it wouldn't pay for them. Um, The locals didn't like that and they got voters to pass uh, a couple of initiatives that tightened up the rules. So now essentially um, the state legislature, if if it wants local governments to do something, it has to pay for it. Um, If they're not gonna pay for it, they have to suspend the mandate. Okay, so we'll end with this last question. Overall, uh, what
1: is the impact of these voter initiatives and propositions on the state budget process? How would you overall, what would your impression be?
3: Well, it's essentially a way that the voters are setting priorities uh, for their elected officials in Sacramento. So the voters have said, as we've just talked about, that they want to be certain that a good share of the state budget goes to our public schools and community colleges every year. They've said they want to see a lot of money set aside in a rainy day reserve. So um, it doesn't completely tie the hands of our legislators and our governor. But it does um, impose some requirements on them that they have to follow um, every year when they build the budget.
1: Follow the money. If you really want to know what the priorities are (laughs) for the the state citizens or the governor or the legislature, follow the money. It's all in the budget. Well, I want to thank our guest, the director of research at the California Budget and Policy Center, Scott Graves. If you also want to stay up with state and local politics, you can sign up for our daily e-newsletter, The Maddie Daily, by going onto our website at maddieinstitute.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. This is Mark Kepler for The Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at mattyinstitute.org.
0: The Maddie Report. Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute. Providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.